The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. Another episode of Positive Talk Radio. I'm so happy you're here. We, we're going to have a great time today. We've got a, a tremendous author who's got a terrific message in the book that he's written. And and I'm probably going to, um, Arthur, I'm kind of known for, I can say your first name, but um, uh, Yavelberg, is that correct? You got it. Hey, good for me. Good for you. <laughs> And uh, it's awfully nice to have you here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I think it's going to be very enlightening. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's obviously it's my pleasure. And you you have a, a book out that we're going to talk about. You've done a bunch of interviews about this book. And and uh, it's right up. Your This book is right up my alley. Can you give us the title of it, please? Uh, Theology for the Rest of Us. And what does theology for the rest of us mean to you? Well, actually, it's a theology for the rest of us. Oh, I mean, a is, is really an important one because as opposed to a lot of, um, you know, you go to any bookstore, you, you'll see a ton of books on spirituality and self-help and all these kinds of things. But this book really is different in that it doesn't have any, uh, you know, answers. You know, most people who write these books say things like, um, if you want to achieve nirvana or salvation or anything like that, all you have to do is do what I tell you to do. And I, do, I don't do that. Basically, what I do is I review some of the issues, some of the key questions involved in spirituality, some of the kinds of questions that bothered me over time and I know have bothered students of all ages, whether it's adult education or kids and things like that. And um, I've outlined some of the implications. And basically, I, I try to challenge people to come up with their own answers. And um, yeah, not so many people, you know, the, the culture is such that everybody wants to be different as long as they can be just like everybody else. And it's, it's not, it doesn't work that way. So, so tell me, you, you've been on the planet for a little while now. And uh, when did you decide that you wanted to write this book and what was your motivation? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know that, there was an aha moment or things like that. But I do know that I've been thinking about some of these questions ever since I was a kid. And what I came across a lot of was either people telling me, you know, shut up and do what you're supposed to do, or people telling me things like, yeah, this is the answer and you do this and that's all the rest of it. And for me not to understand those things was somehow... A, interpreted as a reflection that there was something wrong with me that I wasn't fitting in and all those kinds of things. And the more I thought about it, especially after 
my career in education, yeah, there are a lot of people out there like that, that feel, have the questions, but they're like intimidated by these people either telling them what to do or people telling them, yeah, they shouldn't be having those kinds of questions. So I was hoping to be able to help people go through the same kind of process of questioning and coming up with their own answers and hopefully empowering them to feel like just because they don't have a, you know, a, an exotic accent or flowing robes or they haven't had some kind of an epiphany that um, it's okay. That there, there, there are answers that have historically been out there that it's all right to have those kinds of questions and that the universe in its own way will help people, but it'll meet you more than halfway, but it won't push you through the door. You have to take the first couple of steps, at least yourself. So that's why, I, that's why I started writing. Well, that's a, that's really is awesome. Now, when you talk about some of the questions that you had when you were a kid, can you tell us a couple of the questions that perplexed you that you were looking for answers for? Yeah. Well, I, I think, well, there, there were, first off, there was just the experience. I, you know, it's, it's, it, hopefully it doesn't sound too silly, but my first real uh, experiences, my, you know, my mother was very superstitious. She was from Mexico and not particularly educated at all. And she was very superstitious. Whatever the, the ritual was, the superstition was, she would follow it. And my father, who was Canadian, he was a devout atheist. So he wasn't interested in any of this stuff. So my first experience was not even in, at home or religious school or anything like that. It was actually watching King of Kings on television with Jeffrey Hunter, who happened oh, to have been Jeffrey uh, Christopher Pike and the pilot for the Star Trek, the original Star Trek show. He was. And, and I started watching Kung Fu, which was this Western kind of thing about this uh, Shaolin a Taoist priest from China who was in exile in the Wild West in the United States. And I got to tell you, something in those fictional stories kind of hit a spark in terms of raising some of these questions. So in terms of the questions themselves, um, I got to tell you, I, I never understood this whole business of um, somebody living a life and being judged for all eternity on the basis of that one life. And very innocently, I would ask questions like, how can that be? You know, a four-year-old dies at four in, you know, 2020, an 80-year-old dies at 80 in, you know, 1917, and they're both going to be judged on the basis of those, that kind of evidence for all of eternity? I don't even know what all of eternity means. I mean, I got to think anything. I mean, I get bored after 50 minutes. So, you know, you're talking about eternity. I mean, eternity is really a long time. So th that just didn't make sense to me. And, and to get answers like, well, you just don't understand because it's a mystery. I say, okay, it might be a mystery, but it, it's just useless to me. So those kinds of questions. And then there's the usual thing. You know, if there's a divine presence, how can there be such suffering? If God is really all powerful and all good, if he's really all powerful, he could prevent evil. And if he's really all good, he would want to. So that's another question that, that troubled me a lot. And it was only by going into um, some of the details of some of the stories that would answer these questions that I began to realize 
there, there isn't just one approach. I mean, there are Eastern approaches and Western approaches and Native American approaches and all this kind of stuff. And I began to realize, you know, just, again, I hope it doesn't sound pretentious or anything like that, but yeah, I would look up, literally, I'd look up, you know, at, at stars and things like that. One of the beautiful things about Arizona, as opposed to New York, New York, you look up in the sky, and if you can see between the skyscrapers for like 15 minutes, in the middle of the day, you can see the sky. But in Arizona, you get the whole breadth of the sky. And it's an amazing experience. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, really? I mean, how can it be? that whatever it is that's responsible for all of this marvelous existence is going to be limited by something as, as simplistic as the kind of theologies I kept hearing, you know, left and right. And that just didn't make any sense to me. So that pointed me again into the direction of, of answers like, um, well, it can't be all of eternity on the basis of one life. Maybe it can be eternity on the basis, say, of reincarnation or some kind of an evolution that takes place more like a development. Again, being a teacher, you know, I, I, I don't think it, you, you had mentioned before about failure that, um, you know, you started something and, and it failed. And in schools, I, I never talked about failures. I always talked about development. So a, a third grader is not a failed seventh grader. A third grader is a third grader. You know, granted, a third grader can't do everything that a seventh grader can do, but a third grader can do what a third grader can do. And that's all that's really necessary for a third grader to do. So in terms of reincarnation, which is such, such a term that's bandied about so much, when you think of reincarnation in terms of like, you know, the growth and changes of, that take place in the world of nature, an acorn is is not a failed tree or a premature tree. An acorn is an acorn, but it develops and emerges into a tree. Uh, you know, butterflies emerge from a cocoon and things like that. They're, they're not failed steps. So I look at reincarnation as this kind of development. It's not punishment. I know karma a lot of times is referred to. If you're a bad person, you'll come back as a cockroach or something. It's not... That's not the point at all. It's a point of, of learning about sensitivity and being, being capable more and more of understanding that we really are, given the theme of your show, we really are responsible for one another. You know, your foot is not jealous of your hand if your hand hurts and you start paying attention to your hand. Well, the more that we can realize that we are all in this together. There's, there's a great story in the Talmud, of uh, the Jewish Talmud of these people in a rowboat. And uh, this guy starts boring a hole in the bottom of the boat. And the other people start looking at him and say, what are you doing? We're gonna drown. And he answers, why are you complaining? I'm just drilling under my seat. So <laughs> you know, I don't think people realize that we are all in this together. And it's not a you know, the Western model is you have to be good because you want to get to heaven and you want to get rewarded for good behavior. The Eastern model is much more, you want to be good because it's your own self-interest. 
because the more that all of us work together, we are all successful. You know, people are in the world of nature are extraordinarily limited. You know, we're not big and strong. We don't have, you know, we can't fly. We don't have, you know, sharp teeth and claws and all this kind of stuff. The only thing that allowed people, humanity, to reach the point of development is by working together. People are social animals, not because it's the nice thing to do or the right thing to do, it's the way we survive. So to the extent we work together and cooperate and help each other and are kind to each other, it's not that it's a goody two-shoes kind of morality, it's, you know, it's selfish. If I help you, the two of us can do much more or the group of us can do much more than we can on our own. That's, that is that is so true. And, you know, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that most people at one point in time in their life say, is this all there is? And why am I really here? Because everybody wants to make a difference. Everybody wants to have a consequential life. And a lot of us don't have any earthly idea how. And if you follow a traditional uh, theology, you are put into a box. This is what you do. This is what you believe. This is when you go to church. This is when you get to eat meat. This is when you go do that. And uh, rather than finding yourself and, and determining for yourself what is right and what rings true for you, uh, at least that, that's my opinion. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think, you know, there are all kinds of studies uh, I think it's Viktor Frankl who talks about man's search for meaning. And Viktor Frankl is, a, is in a particularly important person in this kind of conversation because he's a survivor of the concentration camps. And basically his point is that um, physical satisfaction, you know, having enough food to eat and all that kind of stuff is necessary up to a point. But in order for people as people to be happy, they need to have a sense of meaning. Now, how you define that meaning is, is very, very tricky, but the void you're talking about, you know, Soren Kierkegaard, probably the father of existentialism, uh, is it was a great name, by the way, to mention at cocktail parties and things like that. You mentioned Soren Kierkegaard. Ooh. <laughs> you're so smart. I've never seen any of his paintings, but he must be great. Anyway, <laughs> so he writes a book of fear and trembling. And this, this void that you're talking about of people having a sense of what's it all about, what's, you know, what's meaningful, is the kind of question that creeps up at like three o'clock in the morning when there are no people around, there's nobody around to impress and nobody around to reassure you or anything like that. You're on your own. And these kinds of questions kind of gnaw at you. So well, what are you going to do? Well, the downside of being social animals is that most people, they're all by themselves. Well, I got to find somebody else and I got to find somebody else who's right. And they're going to take care of me and they're going to give me a structure that's going to allow me to feel safe. The problem is it's their structure. It's not your structure or my structure. And those things will have meaning for them that may or may not have meaning for us. And that's where the real, real risk is. Now, how many of us are really, really prepared to say to our friends and neighbors and lovers and all the people we work with, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go my own way. I'm gonna do it by myself. 
I mean, I'll do my job as I have to do my job. But when it comes to these other things, like what church to go to and things like that, yeah, what works for you may not work for me. And I got to tell you, and I say this in the book, don't expect people to say, yeah, go with it. You're on, brother. You can do it yourself and all. No, the reaction you are more likely to get is you can't. That's a waste of time. You can't do it on your own. You know, you need us. Because what's really bothering them is if you can do it and you can go out by yourself and find something that's meaningful for you, then they have to do it too. Well, if you can do it, then maybe I can do it. And maybe I can do it. But if I want to do it, these are the risks involved. These are the people who are not going to be happy with me. These are the naysayers who are going to tell me, hey, you have to fit in. Otherwise, you're an outsider. And that is not to be underestimated. People who are in the midst of crowds and feel security, but there's, you know, there's a saying to the effect of there's nothing lonelier than to be surrounded by people who don't know who you really are. Um, that is, that, is, that is so true. You know, the interesting thing is, is I believe that, well, we've spent the last, I don't know, 3,000 years or so, uh, looking for that guru, that 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 guy that uh, with the long hair and with the with, with the robes and is going to be so enlightened that he's got all of these wonderful things and we can embrace them. But you're, but I think we're coming to a time when people are starting to recognize it's not anything external. It's not what somebody else believes. It's what do you believe, and what ring what rings true to you. Um, and if you do that in a positive way uh, and and believe in and search for because you you've done it's clear you've done a tremendous amount of research for your book and before I, I have and I and, and I have to tell you this is something that is common depending on where you look in the mystical traditions both east and west uh, the Buddha is probably better known in this context because the Buddha comes out and says pretty much exactly what you just said, be ye lamps unto yourselves. You, you know, I, if, if what I say makes sense to you, great. If it doesn't make sense to you, you do what makes sense to you. But even in the Christian tradition in the West, you now have people like Richard Rohr, who I think you in particular might find interesting. He makes a distinction and he's a Catholic, you know, authority and all these kinds of things. So it's not like he's some new age, you know, uh, type who's out on the fringe someplace. He makes a distinction between Jesus, the historical personality, and the Christ, which is the universal power that I call the divine intelligence, or in China they call the Tao and that kind of thing. And basically what, he, what his point is that Jesus is not the usual model of this guru or savior or anything like that. Rather, Jesus is more of a role model what does Jesus, what's the whole story of the passion and all the rest of it? And why is Jesus fully human as well as fully divine, which is part of very orthodox Catholic uh, theology? Because in order to go through the passion, if Jesus is not fully divine, if, if, if he's not fully human, you know, what's the big deal? You know, Superman goes through, you know, a hurricane or something like that and survives. Now, Arthur, you go do it. Uh, duh, it's easy for you, Superman. I'm not Superman. So for Jesus to go through all that passion stuff and say, I'm doing this for you, well, I, I couldn't have done it to begin with. 
But if Jesus is fully human and he goes through all these experiences and he's saying, look, I get it. It's terrible. It's suffering. It's all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, just like I was able to overcome it through the resurrection, so you can too. There's this wonderful uh, woman uh, mystic of the Middle Ages, Julian of Norwich. Um, and, you know, it's not huge philosophical texts and all this kind of stuff. You know, a lot of big words and, certain, you know, all that kind of thing. What's her message? If you really believe, all will be well. If you really have a basic confidence in the um, divinity that pervades the universe, nothing can hurt you, right? Nothing can hurt you. And if you don't, and this is the part I add, because I always have the, you know, plan B and all this kind of stuff. Say it's not. Pascal, a 17th century mathematician, has Pascal's wager. He says, look, um, I believe there's a God and a divine presence and all that kind of stuff, and everything's going to be well. But let's say there isn't. You know, this is it for this life and its existence and all the rest of it. And so fine, at the end of this life, we disappear. We're not going to know anything about it because there's nothing afterwards or anything like that. So the real question then becomes, which faith system is better for this time we have on, on, the, on this earth. If we believe in a divine presence, we're going to go through our lives with a different mindset and a different attitude than, than the alternative that says, yeah, this is just a waste of time. Eat, eat, drink, and be merry, that famous thing by Epicurus way back when. Everybody knows the line, eat, drink, and be merry, but they don't know that maybe the rest of it, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die right? If there's nothing else out there, then we just die at the end of this experience and, and disappear. So you can imagine someone who believes in the divine presence being much more hopeful and optimistic and kind and helpful to other people than someone who believes, yeah, I'm going to get what I can while I can, because it's all going to end up anyway. So there are real behavioral implications to what kind of spiritual approaches we adopt toward reality. I agree with you 100%. Now, you, you mentioned that your father was a devout atheist. Correct. And I, did he ever change his ways or no. he lived that way? Was To my way of thinking, when he on the day that he passed away, he had a big surprise uh, because he didn't just go away. Um, but people who live with that who believe that that's all there is and that they when they die there's nothing left i can't imagine living that way is it was was he a happy guy was was it uh and what led what do you think led to that belief structure well in, in fairness I, I i really don't judge other people you know everybody like i said i don't see third graders as failed seventh graders i think everybody is where they are and they um, you know, they learn what they can learn. And for me, and people who believe in reincarnation or some form of it, it's not like it has to be now. Okay, not now, it'll be the next time or the time when you're talking about the billions of years that the universe is around, you know, one lifetime more or less, what's the big deal? So in terms of my father in particular, uh, he lived through the depression. He was born in 1913. And I'm very sympathetic to those people who, oh, sure. yeah, <laughs> you can talk about God all you want, 
But until somebody down the street comes to me and turns nothing into 12 loaves of bread and a bunch of wine, yeah, I'm going to go out and get a job and, and, and do what I need to do to support my family. Or and just find me, a just find a chicken that you can slaughter. Because in those days, it was that was you know that was that was tough, and and uh, so I, I get it. Yeah. So I you know he had a very difficult time as that entire generation had during the depression, and the fact that they came out of it uh, with a hardened attitude towards what life is all about. He was also with, he went through World War II. He landed in North Africa and stuff like that. And um, he was not the kind of person who believed, you know what, let's all sit around in a circle and sing Kumbaya songs and that kind of stuff. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, I, I'm not either. I know there's evil in the world. I know there are people who take pleasure, a sick pleasure in seeing other people suffer and in pain and that kind of thing. But I try to put it in the perspective that they just, haven't reached the point where they see what the reality is. Um, I, unfortunately for my father, I think he developed this hardness in order to survive. The downside was, I don't think he was able to enjoy life the way um, it's possible to enjoy life when you are optimistic. If, if you believe that the world is a very hard place and that, you know, success is at best only very, very temporary. And at the end of the day, you're just going to die and disappear. It's very hard to live a happy, meaningful life with that kind of rubric in mind. You do need to have, you know, one, one of the nicest things about Greek mythology is the whole story I, I, um, of, of Pandora's box, where the... Um, you know, she opens this box out of curiosity and this and that, and all these different things come out in the world. And the only thing that's left in the box is hope. So she lets hope out of the box and hope redeems all the other terrible things that come out of the box. Because once you have hope, you always have this sense in the back of your, of your mind that there is something positive in what's going on. Yeah, I know I'm going on, but I, I especially given what you've said about your audience and, 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 and things like that, there are all kinds of people in, in the world and there are people who have all kinds of reasons to celebrate their uh, wealth and health and all these kinds of things. And yet they're bitter and angry and always looking to do more. I remember with Ted Turner was on some interview on greed he was the 10th wealthiest man in the world at the time, and yet it wasn't enough. If you're not number one, you're last. You know, if you're not number one, you're last. So here's this guy with all this money and all this stuff, and he's not happy. Meanwhile, Stephen Hawking is this brilliant, brilliant physicist. He's stuck in this wheelchair. He can barely talk through some kind of a voice box and things like that. He's crippled. He can't do his body. His physical body is terribly limiting to all the things he knows he could do. He has every reason to be bitter and not at all. You know, he would show up on the Simpsons TV show. He would show up with interviews and what's that. He had a great sense of humor, all these kinds of things. If anybody had reason to be bitter, it was him. But he was, he in his own way had come to terms with his existence and made the best of it, made it meaningful. 
And then the interesting thing about him as well is he had uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. Correct. And he survived long after most people would have passed away with that because he had a passion. He had a reason to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people don't, you know, I, I hope this doesn't sound morbid at all, but anytime I'm faced with a choice or a dilemma or something like that, I try to project out to my deathbed. And I say, you know what, Arthur, you're on your deathbed. And you're looking back on this moment. What choice would you make that you would be happy you made looking at it from the perspective of your deathbed? And I think that's exactly the point. People who do not pursue their passions don't realize that they are dying along the way prematurely. What is it? Shakespeare who said, you know, a coward dies a thousand deaths, a hero dies but once. I don't think people realize the price they are paying for what they perceive to be uh, security. It's just not there. You're you're going to die anyway. You, You might as well explore the passions and talents you were uh, born with and get the satisfaction that comes from that, as opposed to being a drone throughout your life, suppressing who you are, uh, who you really are, and keeping away those people who could be kindred spirits and supporters simply because they don't recognize you because you're pretending to be somebody else. You know, and you, you're you're exactly right. And uh, and by the way, we're talking with Arthur Yavelberg, and the name of your book again, sir, is a a theology for the rest of us. A theology for the rest of us. I love the title. Um, I love what you, your work is because you don't preach to anybody to tell them anything that they should do this or they could do that. You just lay out some of the options that they have and and then let the individual pick what they're going to do with your life and i choose personally i choose passion i choose i there are certain things that i love to do and i have been given a great gift and i'm able to do it and i'm able to talk to people like you um that are that are just phenomenal because at the end of the day we're and i also by the way believe in reincarnation and I believe that, that we are here to gain experiences and we're also here to have a good time. And we're here to enjoy our, our, our lives and our families and our friends and, and to learn a lot. And uh, because we're going to come back and do this again. And it's kind of like in my world, it's kind of like a playground. Um, and but now that's how I interpret it. There are other people will, that will interpret it from a, a religious viewpoint or whatever. And that's fine. Um, if that makes them happy, I just want people to be happy and to be loving and to understand that we're all one and that we are all in this together. And if we can, if we can accomplish that, we will have accomplished a great deal. I, 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 I think that's true. And not only do I think that's true, that's a message that comes out from religious leaders, whether you're talking about the East or the West, whether you're talking about, you know, Muhammad or Abraham or Moses or Jesus or any of these in the the West or the Buddha or Krishna or any of these people, they're all talking along the lines of not only, I, I, I think people confuse and words are so important in this kind of thing. When you say you want people to be happy, There are many people who confuse the term happy with what 
technically is temporary pleasure. I feel good at this moment. There, that must be happiness. When the reality is, is that people don't achieve real happiness and contentment unless they feel satisfied and meaningful. That's where the real sense of satisfaction comes in. And that's why people pursue, you know, uh, drugs, intoxicants, you know, sex, work, all these kinds of things that are not part of their passion, but they take up their time and create the illusion of happiness. Whereas real satisfaction is something that has to come from really investigating and exploring and expressing people's own passions and talents and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's amazing. Arthur, you, you have been, uh, how long were you a teacher, by the way? Uh, 40 years, uh, teacher, school administrator, a good 40 some years. And, um, it, um, you know, in, in the Jewish Talmud, there's this line about, I have learned quite a deal, quite a lot from my teachers, but I've learned much more from my students. And it's, it's absolutely true. Um, but, yeah. but, at the, but at the same time, I'll bet you that you, because you were a teacher for so long and you taught kids well and, and you were accessible and cause you seem like a very accessible guy and, and that, and you impacted and you impacted a huge number of lives, I think in a positive way. I think one of the nice things, you know, people, you know, complain or whatever about Facebook and social media. One of the nice things that has come out for me on Facebook is a number of former students who, you know, come out and recognize my name or, you know, they know this person who knows that person who knows me. And they make these all these kinds of connections. I think the difference that I didn't know it at the time, but I can articulate it now. At the time, I remember being very apprehensive about teachers following the usual model where the teacher knows stuff, the student doesn't know stuff, and it's the teacher's job to instill what the teachers knows in the, in the students. As opposed to my approach, which was always, you know what, there are things out there to learn and there are all kinds of ways of getting information. But once you have the information, we have to interpret it in our own way. So for me, I, I never understood why people would think history was boring because history is a you know, study of dates and places and things like that. And for me, history was just the drama of humanity. So I never really asked on a test, you know, when was George Washington born? But I would ask questions like, do you think George Washington was a good president? Or Looking back, do you think Abraham Lincoln would have thought George Washington was a good president? And I got to tell you, those kinds of open-ended questions that don't have right answers, those are the kinds of questions that really stimulate people into thinking as opposed to memorizing. You know, people today, it's, it's really unfortunate. We have such a polarized society. People don't think for themselves. They want to know on which side you're on. And if you're on the right side, I'll follow you. And if you're on the wrong side, you're wrong. And I don't care what you say on either side. I'm going to follow you if you're on my side. And I'm going to, you know, you know, rail at you if you're on the wrong side. And if somebody on the wrong side says something I agree with, yeah, I don't care. It must be because I don't understand. It's, it's, it's really sad. But that's what I see. 
And the internet, you know, I don't care whatever people's political persuasions are. People want, there was a time when people thought, you know, the three TV stations that we had at the time, NBC and ABC and CBS, that was too limited. Well, now people have all these sources of information. And the problem is nobody talks to each other or listens to the other side anymore. People who are on the left, they watch MSNBC. People on the right, they watch Fox News. And God forbid anybody should be appear on the other's program at all. They stick with what they know is right, and they don't want to have to think about it. That's what they get paid to do. They get paid to think for me, and that's what I'm going to do. It doesn't work. Not if you want to be a thinking, mature human being. No, it, it, it really does. I spend some time... Although I have to be honest with you, the news is such these days that I I I used to be a news junkie, and uh-huh. I and now now that news has become more opinion than it is news, then and because it used to be well, you remember when with like Walter Cronkite, right? That he would he would give you what the news was, and then you could form an opinion about what it meant, and and now they're telling us what it means, and it makes it very difficult for us to um to, to get a clear understanding of everything that's going on and so i i watch a, quite a bit less of it but when i do turn tune into both sides cnn and uh or msnbc and fox um i get a completely different viewpoint i understand why now it's like if you as an example my mother was a fox listener so she would come up with things that i knew not to be correct um but but it was just because that's was the forum that she used and she listened to the opinion guys not the news guys and so it made it it made it very difficult and we we have to get through that we have to get past that and we have to start talking to each other again and one thing that i i'm hopefully that you'll be really pleased about this what i'm seeing pop up all over the country are groups of people communities that are getting together, they're using Zoom, they're using other other electronic means so that they can get together and like-minded people can talk amongst themselves and to learn things. And and this, this I, I believe it's a growing movement in this country. And it's I think it's going to be very helpful, I hope. I think this program is, is an example of that. I think the way you start down that road is you're Kevin McDonald. When I look at you, I don't see liberal, conservative, Christian, Buddhist, all this kind of stuff. I see somebody that I like and respect. I want to listen to what you have to say because I want to see if it makes sense to me, but it's born out of a sense of respect for you as an individual, as opposed to, well, first tell me what side you're on, and then maybe I'll listen to you and maybe I won't. So you see the difference? It's about respect for the individual, and that's what's so lacking. It, it's and so sad it's so sad now you are a learned man and like i said you've been on the planet for a little while you were a teacher for 40 years in your opinion what do you think that we can do as a people to get out of this particular mess that we find ourselves in um i i think i i think it takes a certain amount of courage i i i, I like I, I like it when individuals, and, and it's very hard because I, I understand the risks. 
No, it's interesting. I was in I was teaching middle school for a number number of years, and there was such a fear of 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 kids having of of what their peers thought, and I think some of us, most of us, maybe have never grown outgrown that because we're so afraid of what our friends and neighbors and families will think and this kind of stuff that we don't want to risk alienating their their affections. So I think maybe the way to start I, I, is, is to get rid of labels. That helps. Just get rid of the labels. Let's talk about ideas. Here is an idea where we don't know if it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative or whatever, but here is a problem. Here is a proposed solution with the positive, here are the pros and here are the cons. And let's focus on the task at hand and not on the labels and who's supporting it and you know, and the whoever's bankrolling it behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. I think to the extent we can get rid of labels, that way we can start having a sense of focus because that it'll be based on, on the actual material. It won't be based on these prejudicial notions going into it and people will have to start thinking because they can't just jump to the conclusion if it's on msnbc or fox news that's the answer i want yeah and depending on what channel it's on you'll decide whether it's a a uh, socialistic liberal thing or it's a communistic uh, conservative thing or, or whatever and it would be much better if we could just lay it out as it as it is i'll give you an example i interviewed a gal just the other day and they're putting together an aquifer and the whole and the whole idea is it's kind of like a uh a hatchery only it's completely self-contained they use the same water they filter the same water the fish do not get any chemicals in them and stuff like that and so when they use the fish they're much cleaner and stuff now I think that's a really good idea because it's a lot more sustainable. We use 95% less water doing that. Huh. We, we can create uh, um, um, fertilizer out of, out of the, uh, out of the um, um, uh, fish poop and stuff like that, and the fish come out much cleaner. Now, is that a liberal idea or a conservative idea? <laughs> exactly. And, and the, the, to categorize it as liberal or conservative is just a distraction. It, it doesn't help. You know, it doesn't add anything to the discussion except prejudicial, you know, background that just distorts everything. Here's the idea. This is what it's worth. This is what it's supposed to do. Does it do it? How cost effective is it? Those are the real relevant questions. The other stuff is just... Uh, distraction distortion it, it it really is and and by the way arthur i gotta tell you will you come back can we do this some more oh sure um, i'm a former teacher i can talk all you want. <laughs> <laughs> now and you're also you're also a very learned man and well, it's very kind of you to say so but i don't think there's anything that it, it, you know i say it only semi-facetiously you know if if i if I can't believe anything unless I understand it. And for me to understand it, it's got to be pretty simple. <laughs> so, you know, people tell me stuff like, you know, your book is really great because it makes these complex ideas really accessible. And the only thing I'm thinking is I make these complex ideas accessible because that's the only way I can understand them. 
<laughs> well, and and I got to tell you a quick story if I can. Sure. Um, one of the things that I learned when I was in my early forties, and I had uh, I'd grown up in a Lutheran home, and it was it was a very structured deal and Sunday school, and I went to a parochial school and all that, and so it was very structured. And I didn't feel like just like you. It's like okay, let me see. The Earth is four and a half billion years old. The universe is fourteen billion years old, and we're here for. 60 to 80 years and our entire future depends upon what happens during that 60 or 70 or 80 year period. And it's going to be the foundation of eternal life for like, how long the hell is eternal life? That's going to be lasting a while, I would think. And, and so I, I was not comfortable with that theology because it didn't work for me. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why the, uh, the universe or a God or whoever's out there would, would want to do that um, rather than what what Jesus taught, which was that God loves everybody, um, you know, and we're all, in, as a matter of fact, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, our Father who art in heaven, meaning that it's not like my Father and you are subjects, it's like our Father because we're all children of God or the universe or whatever it is. And so uh, I decided, and this is where somebody's going to find your book, and this is Made a long story to get to this. Um, they're going to go looking in a book bookstore. They're going to be looking online. They're going to be looking in at uh, um, Amazon, and they're going to be looking for a a something that that reaches out to them uh, because they're having these questions. And the questions a theologist a theology for the rest of us can begin going down that road to creating an answer for yourself. And they're going to pick up that book. And they're going to read it, and it's going to change who they are and how they think. How powerful is that? I, I think it's real powerful, but it's especially powerful in the context of your story. When Did you ever feel comfortable asking people around you who were supposed to know this stuff, here's my question, do you have an answer? And if you did, what kind of reaction did you get from them? No, I, as a matter of fact, we, <laughs> interestingly, you bring this up is that it was uh, Thanksgiving dinner and we were talking about the end times. And my, my mother is a, uh, um, a uh, fundamentalist Christian. My brother was too. And so they were talking about the end times is going to happen in our lifetime and it's going to be Jesus is going to come down and all, you know, the, the rapture and all that stuff. They had, they had it all worked out. <laughs> That's exactly what was going to happen. And I was like, the earth is four and a half billion years old. Now, a billion years is a thousand million. And that's that's a pretty long time. To pinpoint when the earth is going to end to within a 60 or 70 year period of time within that, that would be hard to do. So, but they would not, they were not interested in hearing that. Right. And so consequently, I shut it down. But, it, right. I, but I was frustrated. So I went to a friend's right. house and, uh, um, and he said, you need to go to a, a metaphysical bookstore. And you need to buy the first book that speaks to you. And I so I did. And that was called Journey of Souls by Dr. Michael oh, Cool. Are you familiar with that book? I, I am. But, but that whole process, you know what? The people around you are not receptive to what you're genuinely really. You're not trying to be make trouble or anything. It's a genuine question. Yeah. And you know what? But you're going to go out to a bookstore and see what connects with you. That's how the universe works. I, I really think that that's how the universe works. 
That's how everybody can point back to the things that have happened in their lives without which they wouldn't be where they are today. Those are those turning points where the universe is pointing in the right direction. You know, I had the opportunity to go to Singapore just before retiring. And there's no way somebody like me would have, could have plausibly, logically had the opportunity to go to a place like Singapore, you know, conservative, risk averse, safety first, all this kind of stuff. And I didn't even know what Singapore was. I thought Singapore and Shanghai and Hong Kong were all the same place, just a different language. <laughs> and yet I go there and, not, and because I'm there, I have the opportunity to go to Japan and China and Thailand and talk with all these wonderful people and all that kind of stuff. There's no way that should have happened in any kind of a logical uh, framework. There's, it, there's the only thing that makes sense to me is the op is that this was somehow the divine intelligence working through to make sure that even somebody as risk averse as me is going to have the kind of experience it needs to have. And I think everybody has those kinds of experiences, how they respond to them, you know, whether they have this experience and they say yes to it or no to it, that's up to them. But that the universe will help provide the opportunities, absolutely. I have a perfect uh, story for that. Can I can I tell you real quick? Of course, it's your show. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but but I I'm so enthralled with what you're saying. But when I was uh, 20, 21, right in there, twenty two. Um, I was a waiter at the uh, at at a fine dining restaurant in 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 downtown or in in Tukwila where I lived at the time, and I had a good friend. His name was Corey McDonald, and and his dad taught at Green River Community College, which is a community college in Auburn. And he said to me one day as we were sitting by his pool, he said, "You know, I think I want to go take auto body at Green River in the fall." And I said, and he said, "Will you come with me?" And I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I, I'm not really into auto body, but, you know, I could, probably couldn't do me any harm. I have the time. So we go. And in those days, the, the computers weren't available. Uh, this was 1980 and stuff. So it still was the way where they would, the the teachers would have, well, you know, teachers would have a little a desk uh, within like the, the auditorium or whatever. And then you would go sit at the desk and you would sign up for the class and all that right. kind of stuff. And uh, um, so we're, we're getting in, we're in line and we're waiting to get to the front of the line. And um, he looks at me, we're like four people away now. And he looks at me and he says, you know, I don't think I want to do this. I don't, I'm not going to do this. And his dad was a professor there and he said, I'm going to go to my dad's classroom and you want to come? And I said, well, you know, I, I'd like to look around and let me see what it is. Well, so I waited in line. By myself now and i hadn't been to school in a long time and uh, since high school and um get to the front of the line and in the, the one of the front tables right there was theater extempore which is the drama department at green river community oh. college and they, there was nobody sitting at the table and the drama instructor was sitting behind the, the, the table so i go and sit down and we talk and i and we hit it off and i joined the theater department and um um and the improvisational theater and that decision for me to go do that versus to go with him i mean it was clearly a decision i could make it either way and there was no judgment either way but i chose that 
which led to my marriage and led to being a disc jockey in the radio station and led to acting on several plays and gaining confidence in what I could do. And it changed it literally that one moment changed my entire, the course of my entire life. That's amazing. That's amazing. And like I say, I think just about everybody has had those turning points, whether they took advantage of them or not is, is up to them. That's one of the sections of the, in the book too, about free will in terms of, you know, how can there be free will and all kinds of questions of, of physics but the real question for me is in terms of this divine intelligence is that um, I sit down with Magnus Carlsen, who's the world chess champion, and, and um, we sit down and play a game of chess, and he's going to win the game. You know, I get it. He's going to win the game. Having said that, even Magnus Carlsen, the world chess champion, does not know exactly what moves I'm going to make. So he waits for me to make my moves, and then he makes the counter moves and guides the game to his uh, victory. That's how free will fits into this whole divine complex. In the Bible, you have exactly the same thing. The story of Joseph, Joseph is this um, young man who's blessed with the ability to interpret dreams and things like that. The problem is he's very uh, proud of it, and his father, Jacob, you know, makes him a coat of many colors and makes singles him out from his uh, siblings. They are understandably jealous and they sell him into slavery and they expect never to see him again. They're hoping he dies. Well, I don't know how familiar people are with the story, but, but Joseph goes through all these different experiences. He, he becomes in charge of a jail cell, then he gets thrown into jail. He has an affair, you know, he's tempted into an affair with uh, Potiphar's wife and all this kind of stuff. At the end of the day, He's in charge of the, the, this special area of the Egyptian um, economy where he, because he understands the Pharaoh's dreams, he's able to make sure that they store up grain for seven years because there's going to be a famine for seven years. So at the end of the day, his brothers are brought to Egypt begging for food, basically, and they don't recognize their brother. And when Joseph reveals himself to them, he says to them, and they're all scared and, you know, he's going to kill us and blah, blah, blah. And he says to them, look, what you meant for evil, God turned into good. Had you not sold me into slavery, I would not have been in the position of power in Egypt today where I not only saved Egypt, but I saved you and all the people around us from this famine that was taking place. What you meant for evil, God turned into good. So at the end of the day, this divine intelligence, whatever it is, is going to make sure that things work out the way they need to. We can make the trip shorter. We can make it longer. We can try to stop it and this and that. But at the end of the day, guess what? Magnus Carlsen and God will win. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I, and um, one of these days when I write my biography, I will talk about all, all the synchronicities that have happened in my life. Correct. That that made it what it has to date, what it has been, and where it is going. Um, and I truly believe that uh, that they have, you know, <clears throat> when we talk about it's God's plan. God has a plan for you, and this is the way. I I don't believe that per se because of the, we have free will. I think that we create our own plan. And uh, we have the ability to either follow it and lead it and to create it or to not. And if we choose not to, we are wasting our life, in my opinion. 
How do you feel about it? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's like I just said, I think a good teacher in school does not see a student as an empty vessel that needs to be filled up. A good teacher in school takes a student where he is, understands that student's individual talents and tries to make it clear to the student what his choices are and options are, what might work and what might not work. So when, when you, sometimes the universe says no. You know, I can get it into my head that I want to be the starting second baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies, and that's going to be my life's mission. And, I, I, you know, otherwise I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to live. And the universe is going to say, okay, we'll see you next time around because this isn't going to work. <laughs> it's not, it's just not. So sometimes the universe says no, and maybe not this lifetime and maybe another one or, or whatever it is. But um, at the end of the day, and that day maybe several lifetimes, we'll have a sense as to what's really in our best interests and what really will give us a sense of satisfaction and meaning and things like that. In your case, you were lucky and perceptive in identifying what your passions were, being realistic about what it would take in order to bring those uh, passions to fruition, and you were able to do it. Not everybody is that perceptive. There are people who are deluded in, in the sense of what they can do and what they want to do and what's important to them. And over this lifetime or other lifetimes, they'll get more clarity as to what's really important and what's really meaningful. Uh, you're a great success story. Not everybody is, is at the stage where they can do that. I'm extremely lucky. And by the way, Holly says, uh, Arthur's perspectives are enjoyable, both deep and large vista. And and she asked, did you teach? And of course you did for 40 years. For a long, long time. <laughs> and, by the and, way, the 40 is the number in the Bible the Bible uses to just say a lot. <laughs> you know, it, today it, we say, you know, it took a million years. Yeah, the Bible was just 40. Inflation has been a terrible thing. <laughs> I got I got one more quick story for you that sure. also happened to me. Uh, do you remember uh, in 1976 a movie came out called Rocky? Oh, sure. From Philadelphia. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, and so you're from Philadelphia, then you I know. Grew up in, yeah, yeah, and uh, it was a it was a movie that really touched me, and I really wanted to, I really wanted to be a boxer. So I went down to Seventh and Union, which they had the Eagles Gym back then, and that's where if you were wanted to be a pro boxer, you would go to the Eagles Gym, and you would meet some of the trainers and so forth. And I met a guy by the name of Joe Toro. And he had trained some some of note uh, uh, local fighters and had done really quite well. And he looked at me and he looked at my physique and and he said, you know, you could be really something. You could be a spec. And I had I, I could really punch and stuff. And I and uh, so he said, you could be you could be a champion of the world. And I believe in you. And I can make, make so I started training and started doing all what you do and you know the dun, dun, and all the uh, lifting and, and boxing and stuff. And uh, the opportunity to came to uh, go to Monroe Reformatory, which is a prison in Monroe, Washington. And it was an AAU program, an amateur athletic program. And the, we would box the inmates. <clears throat> and he, and he said, well, I'll take you up there and you, and you, and we'll match you with somebody who's never had a fight before and it would be a comparable in experience and stuff. So, so that to protect you and to him and so you'll be safe. And so, uh, 
Um, we went we went up there, and to make a long story short, I won the first round and got knocked out in the second round, broke my cheek, had to go to the emergency room, had to have surgery to put it back together again. And in hindsight, at the time, it was like, oh, woe is me. They're going to make me a world champion boxer, and I can do all this and stuff. I had the one fight. It taught me that I didn't have the temperament to do that. I'm too nice of a guy of people. It, it, it's not a sport. It is, uh, it's, it's a war when you go into there and do that. And had I continued to do that, I would have lo- I would have ruined my brain. Um, and I would not be able to do anything that I'm doing today. Um, so it was, again, the universe stepped in and said, okay, you want to do this? Well, we'll let you, but this is what's going to happen. Yeah, but that's not luck. That that was you looking at what happened and and evaluating it and this making a choice to do something else. That's not luck. That was you making sure that you were going to be realistic in terms of what your future could hold. Exactly, and and that and it hurt too much to go. I did not want to go. <laughs> I did not want to go have surgery again. And and again, Holly, who's listening, said, "What a great show, Arthur and Kevin. I bought you a cup of coffee. Thank you it's on your website. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you can go to you can anytime you can go to positivetalkradio.net and you can buy me a cup of coffee. It's like five bucks. So that sounds great. Then it helps. It helps the show. So." Arthur, I have thoroughly enjoyed this time together. I would like Me to do too. this again. Um, Ken, now I'm going to set myself aside over here and okay. I'll give you an opportunity to tell our audience, the ones that are listening now and the ones that will hear this and see this in the future, anything that you would like them to know. Yeah, um, I, I say this not because I have to. You know, I, I'm at a point where, you know, I, I, I don't need this to eat. So this is really an act of, of love in the sense that I want to help people who are going through the kinds of questions that I went through. But this, this quote of Julian of Norwich, I think, is, is important. If we really believe that the universe works according to rational principles and that because it works according to rational principles, there's a divine intelligence behind it. Julian of Norwich says, so all will be well. So whatever anxieties people have, whatever concerns people have, and all that goes with that, at the end of the day, all will be well. And that's, that's for me, that has made a tremendous difference in terms of my own anxieties and whatever. So if I can share that with other people, great. You just did. Oh, good. <laughs> and by the way, uh, we've been talking with... Arthur Rattleberg, and go get the book, A Theology for the Rest of Us. Um, and you can pick it up at Amazon and all the booksellers. It's a five-star book. And we great, I greatly appreciate you being here. It is my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And we're going to have more opportunities because you're a smart guy and you're fun to talk to. Great. You bring out the best in people. So that's 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 your talent. There are other people who look at me as a cure for insomnia. So don't be so sure. <laughs> that's very funny. That's very funny. You'd, so uh, Arthur, stay right there and I'll be right back. Sure.
Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.